Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, what next listener? I have got a special end of summer treat for you this Labor Day. It comes from one of my favorite slate podcasts, One Year. One year is history like you've never heard it before. In each season, host Josh Levine brings you the weirdest, wildest, and most captivating moments from a single year in American history. You'll hear stories you may have forgotten and ones you will not believe you did not know, all told by the people who lived through them. The new season of One Year covers 1955, and you're about to hear the first episode, which is about an all-black team of 12-year-olds who dreamed of playing in the Little League World Series— but they had to battle the white establishment of the Jim Crow South to get there. You will definitely want to hear what happens next. So make sure you subscribe to One Year and hear the whole season. Here's host Josh Levine. This podcast contains language that some listeners might find offensive. I was born in Charleston, South Carolina. I am what you call a binya. Binya means you live here all your life. <laughs> Leroy Major grew up in the 1940s and 50s. He lived in downtown Charleston with his parents and two sisters. But everyone on his street was pretty much like family. You didn't know you were poor because if you had grits, everybody else in the neighborhood had grits. (laughs) The people in Leroy's neighborhood also shared something else. A love of baseball and the black players starring in the major leagues. I was a Brooklyn Dodger fan. Going into the 1955 season, the Yankees and Red Sox had never featured a single black player. The Dodgers were different. By that point, they could roll out a majority black lineup. And in 55, it looked like they might finally win it all. Jackie Robinson steps in against Ford. Here comes the relay. Jackie slides. He's safe. I mean, you want to be like Jackie. You want to be like Campanella. You want to be like Don Newcomb. John Rivers grew up in Charleston, too. It was a, an inspiration to see professional black players on the field. And I actually romanticized the idea that I could go to the major leagues. In the summer of 1955, it seemed like John and Leroy might be on their way. We're in the Susquehanna Valley, and eight Little League teams have arrived to play for the World Championship. The Little League World Series in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, was the pinnacle of youth sports. And John, Leroy, and their teammates were the first all-black squad ever to make the trip. As 12-year-olds, it was exciting. We're going to baseball heaven. Fourteen kids and ten adults piled into an old school bus and set off on the nearly 900-mile journey. A lot of us, that was our first trip out of Charleston. I think we stopped in Baltimore 
And we went to this restaurant for breakfast. No more grits. What is this on my plate? I don't eat no potatoes for the breakfast. <laughs> right near the end of the trip, the bus got to the top of a hill, and the driver put on the emergency brake. But then, when they started up again, he forgot to take it off. Ten minutes outside of Williamsport, smoke started coming from the bottom of the bus. Yeah, man, if you're going to be dramatic, the bus caught fire. We got off, and then we got a ride into town on the fire truck. <laughs> After all that, they were finally there. They made it to the 1955 Little League World Series. Here they come. And the willing tries of these knee-high guys will make baseball history. We were so amazed because that was a real baseball stadium. Immaculate. Immaculate. It feels like carpet, you know? It's like, oh, God. There's no bad bounce or anything to cause a problem. I'm like, oh, shit. You let us take the field, we're going to whip you. That was it. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. How was the bus ride back home to Charleston? Miserable. That ride wasn't miserable because they lost some baseball games. It was actually worse than that. To have something snatched away from you, it's a major impact to your psyche. For John and Leroy and their 12-year-old friends, the Little League World Series was close enough to touch. But in 1955, for a team of black children from South Carolina, baseball heaven was just an illusion. This is One Year, a series that brings you the most captivating moments from a single year in American history. Stories that are heartbreaking, weird, and wild. I'm your host, Josh Levine. And this season, we're firing up our flux capacitors and taking you way back. Safe and sound now, back in good old 1955. It was a year when the suburbs were booming and rock and roll was revving up. 1955. A year of change, of awakening, and of opportunity. 1955 was a year of scientific progress. Dr. Jonas Salk discovers a vaccine that promises to wipe out childhood's crippling and killing enemy, polio. But also, a whole lot of fear. We must be ready all the time for the atomic bomb. And cover. You'll learn how Walt Disney was on the brink before igniting the year's biggest cultural craze, totally by accident. And you'll hear a bunch of forgotten stories, like how TV weather girls took the country by storm, and how a network of housewives fueled a conspiracy theory about communist brainwashing. But first, 
In the year that Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a public bus, a group of 12-year-olds in South Carolina became civil rights pioneers and faced the wrath of a white society that wasn't ready to change. My coach said, we will have to play against white teams in a playoff. Settle it on the field. The court of opinion is always open. This is a crack in the wall, man. These guys are going to integrate baseball. This is one year, 1955. The team nobody would play. As a kid in Charleston, John Rivers lived on an unpaved street. For him, it was the perfect playground. The good thing about it, you didn't have to worry about traffic. And we played from sunup to sundown. <laughs> Most of the time, John and his friends played baseball. But none of their families could afford real baseball equipment. Once in a while, I'd get a chance to get a stick from a shovel or a rake, right? And a piece of wood for second base, maybe an old tire for third base. Buck Godfrey was born in Charleston in 1943. He says that in those days, rubber balls were precious, and losing one was a minor tragedy. Oh, man. Miss Butler, ball going her yard, boy, you can forget that one. By the time he was 10 years old, Buck could send a ball into orbit. He was ready for a new challenge. My daddy said, if you want to be a real hitter, you got to play half rubber. Half rubber was a game invented in Charleston and Savannah, Georgia, sometime around 1900. You get your a rubber ball. Solid rubber, about three inches in diameter. And you take them knives you got and you cut it in half. And you throw this ball, this half a ball, like a Frisbee. Boy, them balls didn't do like we expected them to do. It's up and down and it's unpredictable. Sometimes it's like a real sweet curve. But it did, though, because it had all these unpredictable movements, it began to develop your eye-hand coordination. For John and Buck, Half Rubber was a childhood proving ground. But there was one kid in the neighborhood who never joined in. His name was Sonny, and he was white. Of course, his parents would not allow him to play with black kids. And the poor kid, he just wanted to play ball. We would hit the ball in Sonny's yard, and he'd throw the ball back to us. <laughs> so that's about the only interaction that I had with Sonny. Mm -hmm. When you don't interact with people, you don't know people. You're just totally culturally divided. We were used to doing, you going to your school, I'm going to my school. Leroy Major remembers sitting in the balcony of a movie theater while white people sat downstairs. Separate but equal. We know it was separate, but it wasn't equal. But we got used to that. You were second place. We didn't need uh, white people. We had food. We had each other. We had the doctors, the dentists. All these were black people. One of the main hubs for Charleston's black community was the Cannon Street YMCA. The Y was our 
place of refuge to get you off the street, keep you out of, you know, mischief. The Cannon Street Y was established the year after the Civil War with a mission to serve Black Charlestonians. In the 1950s, its president was a prominent Black businessman named Robert Morrison. Mr. Morrison lived one block from my house, and he was always calm. I was afraid of him. (laughs) (laughs) He was a kind of scary guy? He was kind of gruffy to me. You know, I'm I'm 11, 12. He's just like the old grumpy grandpa, you know? That's how I remember him. When John met him, Robert Morrison was around 70 years old, and he was about to transform John's life and his friends' lives in ways they'd never imagined. When he talked, we listened, and we know he was working for our benefit because he already had what he needed. (laughs) Morrison knew that kids like Leroy, John, and Buck were playing half-rubber in the streets with no organized baseball league to call their own. He was determined to change that, And there was one organization that could help make it happen. Hey, look, Mom, they're playing Little League ball. Little League Baseball was founded in 1939, but it started getting national attention after World War II. In magazines and newsreels, Little League got touted as the essence of American values. It represents sportsmanship, and it represents the desire to succeed. For that is real Americanism. That message spread everywhere, incredibly quickly. Thousands of boys are proudly wearing the Little League uniform with the backing of their communities. By 1954, there were 3,500 individual Little Leagues in all corners of the U.S. and as far away as Korea. And the Little League World Series had become an enormous media spectacle. Newsreel and television cameras are ready to roll. And over a nationwide hookup, here's a play-by-play report of the game by Ted Husing. Take it away, Ted. Here we go from Little League Stadium, Williamsport. Up to that point, every Little League team in South Carolina was entirely white. But the National Little League organization had welcomed black players from the beginning, years before Jackie Robinson took the field for the Brooklyn Dodgers. So when Robert Morrison asked to start a league at the Cannon Street YMCA, Little League's headquarters signed off. Tryouts began in the spring of 1954. I remember going behind the Y in this dirt lot. They were tossing balls around to see if you can catch and see if you can throw. John had to show he could hit, too. He'd learned to bat by playing half-rubber flailing away at balls that curved around in all kinds of crazy ways. Now, he was swinging at real baseballs. They were bigger and easier to smash. And you got a a baseball bat, not a mop stick. It's kind of (laughs) like pitching a basketball and you got an ironing board to hit it. You know what I mean? For Leroy, it was pitching that came easily. On a Little League field, he really stood out. Maybe I was six one, six feet probably. I don't know. Being tall, I was almost to home plate before I released the ball. <laughs> and when that big rascal finished winding up, look like he on top of you. When the rosters got selected, Leroy made the cut. So did Buck and John. All told, the coaches picked 60 boys to play in the Cannon Street Little League. They were divided into four different teams each with its own set of uniforms. My uniform, 
It's a red, red trim, gray. Gray with the green trimming. Hot. I don't know what kind of material that thing was, boy, but you sweat bullets. <laughs> but you were glad you had a uniform, man. I mean, you you got a uniform. We would have it dry cleaned, ready for the game, press. Shoot, you can go to Sunday school and that thing. That's how proud we were of it. Opening day for the Cannon Street Little League came in April 1954. When you say play ball, man, it's like, God dang, it's time. Something's about to happen. We're going to do battle. (laughs) We're going to do battle. The kids from the Cannon Street Y felt confident. But on the field, the competition was extremely tough. You know, when you think you're real good and you get knocked down a peg, you know, I learned that. Yeah, it's competitive. So I basically rode the bench. John felt frustrated and embarrassed that he didn't measure up to the other kids. So he came up with a plan to pretend he was a star. Before the last inning of the game, I would sit on the clay in the dirt, you know, get some dirt on the uniform, kind of make it look like I was in a game or something. And I'd walk back to the neighborhood and I was faking it. Eventually, he decided that he didn't want to pretend, that he'd practice for as long as it took to become a real baseball player. And by the end of that year, my coach said, Rivers, we're going to start you. And it was the first and only night game we played. It was under the lights. The first ball come to me to left field. Charged the ball, cut it off, threw to second base. I did everything right because I've been practicing. And that was it. I like, okay, I got this. <laughs> During that first year, the four teams from the Cannon Street YMCA only played against each other. And as the season played out, it was obvious how much talent was on the field. Norman Robinson was a catcher. A super catcher. Let me tell you about Norman, man. Norman's the best catcher ever created. We had Kyle Johnson. Never made an error. Alan Jackson. Alan was a switch hitter at 12 years old. <laughs> was there any trash talking? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially from the winners. Hey, throw, hey I almost speak Geechee on you now. Throw curveball out of money, you can't that. Yeah, bull leg boy. Troy at head. Man, yeah, that's, that's trash talking. The man in charge, Robert Morrison, recognized how gifted all these kids were. In 1955, he decided they were ready to take on players from outside their neighborhood. Morrison was going to sign them up for an official Little League tournament. In those games, Black Charleston would be represented by a super team, the best of the best from the Cannon Street YMCA. You got a lot of talent you're choosing from, man. That's out of 60 players, 14 were chosen. And uh, I was one of them. Leroy and John joined Buck on the Cannon Street All-Stars. In the summer of 55, they were all 12 years old, and they were ready to take on anyone. That meant competing against white players for the very first time. We were going to get a chance to show the city that we could play baseball. 
just as good as the white kids and probably better. We'll be back in a minute. In 1955, John Rivers, Buck Godfrey, and Leroy Major were getting ready for the most important games of their lives. Charleston's all-black Cannon Street All-Stars were about to play in an integrated Little League tournament. They'd take on teams from all over the city. If they won, they'd keep on advancing in the playoffs, and maybe even go all the way to the Little League World Series. I was excited, I know that. We was practicing every day. Buck and the other All-Stars practiced at a segregated park built on a former landfill. It was a place they felt comfortable, even if it was full of rocks and crabgrass. Armand Field was the home to Black Charleston on the west side. They turned it into a baseball diamond by putting out some red picket fence. We had a bleacher on the right field line. It would be filled with, you know, family, friends, neighborhood people. Did any white people ever go to the games? Nah. Nah. Nope. Nobody white, of course not. Mm -mm. That's how it had always been at Harmon Field. But in 1955, as the All-Stars got ready for their first big tournament, they started to notice some unusual visitors. I remember seeing this white guy leaning up on the pole watching us play. I was warming up, and I saw some guys out there, and I said, damn, they don't come to this neck of the woods. We thought they were scouts, and I'm thinking they're Major League scouts. Those white men were not Major League scouts, but John and Buck and Leroy didn't know that at the time. Even today, they can't be certain about who they saw, although they do have a theory. A lot of us think it was Mr. Danny Jones. Danny Jones. I think it was Danny Jones. Danny Jones was an important man in Charleston. He ran the city's parks and playgrounds. He was also South Carolina's state Little League commissioner. Danny Jones was like about every other white adult in the South. He believed in segregation. Chris Lamb is a journalism professor and historian. He wrote a book about the Cannon Street All-Stars. Danny Jones, you'd love the idea of black boys playing baseball, white boys playing baseball. He just did not like the idea that they should be doing so on the same field. For Danny Jones, separate but equal was a way of life. In the Deep South, it was also the law of the land. But one month after the Cannon Street Little League got going, that legal foundation started to crack. This is the Supreme Court of the United States. On May 17, this court ruled unanimously that segregation in public schools was not legal. The Supreme Court's 1954 decision in Brown v. Board of Education was massive on its own. But a lot of Americans hoped that ruling was just the beginning. One of them was the president of Charleston's Cannon Street YMCA. For Robert Morrison, it felt like this was the moment to push for social change and voting rights in public accommodations, and in youth baseball. It was in that spirit of optimism that Morrison signed up the Cannon Street All-Stars for the District Little League playoffs. That move got the attention of White Charleston. And all of a sudden, there's this collective, holy crap, 
that the unthinkable has happened that a black team has registered to play. This is when John Rivers and his teammates caught a glimpse of the white men they thought were scouts. Looking back, John thinks those men were on a reconnaissance mission. He was spying, basically. All right, you got to size up the enemy. You want to know how well they play. And I think that was one of the greater fear. What if we play these black kids and they won? For South Carolina's political leaders, integrated baseball fields felt like the first step to integrated everything. And they were going to do whatever they could to keep Jim Crow in place. There's not enough troops in the army to force their southern people to break down segregation and admit the Negro race into our theaters, into our swimming pools, into our homes, and into our churches. U.S. Senator Strom Thurmond was the leading spokesman for Southern resistance to integration. When he heard what the Cannon Street All-Stars were trying to do in his home state, he got a message to South Carolina's Little League Commissioner, Danny Jones. And that message was pretty close to a command. You must protect the color line. The district tournament in Charleston was scheduled for early summer. And John Rivers and his teammates felt as prepared as they'd ever be. We were, you know, pumped up. We would have the opportunity to prove something, for sure. It wasn't just the fun of the game alone. At this point, they were just waiting for the schedule to know when and where they'd take the field. But nobody in Charleston wanted to play the Cannon Street All-Stars. And the collective action was that the white teams would all pull out of the tournament. When all the white teams quit, the Cannon Street All-Stars won the district tournament without opposition. That meant they would advance to the next stage of the playoffs, the state tournament in South Carolina's capital city. They were still alive. It just kicked a can two hours away to Columbia. In this round, the All-Stars would be up against the best white teams in all of South Carolina. The adults at the Cannon Street YMCA made sure the kids kept practicing so they'd be sharp when the real games got underway. Leroy Major remembers one coach checking in to see if he was ready. He called us in a circle, and he said, Major, we want you to pitch the first game. You think you can take us through it? I said, yes, sir. While the All-Stars got together at their segregated field, the white teams in the state tournament had a gathering of their own. And they had a vote. And the vote was something like 40 to 15 against playing the Cannon Street All-Stars. The white majority had spoken, and they had an idea about how to move forward. The white Little Leaguers would have their own tournament right away. The Cannon Street All-Stars would stay on the sidelines until there were enough teams for a separate black division. It was a devious plan and a discriminatory one separate but equal, on the baseball field. Segregation in public schools had just been declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. But this move to segregate youth baseball would get decided by a different authority, Little League Baseball's national headquarters in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. You got problems? Relax, boys. There's a Little League committee on the job. For Little League, the Southern Rebellion was a big test. But the men in Williamsport didn't hesitate. They said that separate but equal wasn't going to fly. No. 
you can't. Our charter doesn't allow for segregation. This tournament is going to have to go on. The Little League Code said that every boy shall be given an equal chance to play, regardless of race, color, or creed. Southern prejudice wasn't going to change those national rules. This was a huge victory for the Cannon Street All-Stars. And Little League's national headquarters made another big move to ensure that victory would be a lasting one. In July 1955, they relocated the state tournament. Now, it would be played in Greenville, South Carolina, on a diamond built on federal land. Donaldson Air Force Base, because segregation was not allowed on military bases. At least 15 teams were expected to play, including the Cannon Street All-Stars. I was excited about the opportunity to show our skills and what we could do. South Carolina's Little League commissioner had a different reaction. He believed that Little League was trampling on states' rights, and he wasn't going to stand for it. Danny Jones goes entirely on the side of the segregationist, and he becomes belligerent toward Little League baseball after that. On July 23, 1955, Jones sent a letter of resignation to Little League's national president. In that letter, he said that the kids from the Cannon Street Y were being used to undermine the laws and customs of our people. He creates his own league called Little Boys League, and he writes the charter that says our league will be segregated, and it puts a Confederate flag on the cover of the rule book. Jones scheduled his playoffs for the same day as the integrated state tournament. He was pressuring South Carolina's white baseball teams to secede from Little League. So at this point, uh, the teams begin withdrawing from the tournament. Eventually, it's left with 10 or 12 teams, and then 8, and then 6, and then 2, and then none. And the Cannon Street All-Stars are the only team left in the tournament. It was uh, forfeiture again because they wouldn't play us. We were ready to play. John, Leroy, and Buck had become the district and state Little League champs by default, without ever getting a hit or throwing a strike. As kids, they had no idea what was happening behind the scenes. They just figured that all these other teams were afraid, because the Cannon Street All-Stars were just too talented. We knew we were good. We figured we were going to win the World Series. That's how cocky, not cocky, confident we were. With every team in South Carolina out of the way, the Cannon Street All-Stars were now just one step from the Little League World Series. The last rung on the ladder was the regional tournament in Rome, Georgia. There, nearly 400 miles away, they'd finally get the chance to run and throw and hit. That was the hope, at least. But white Southerners would try one more ploy to stop the All-Stars. The director of the regional tournament he doesn't want them to play. And he says, you're disqualified. There is this rule that says you have to advance by winning on the field and not by forfeit. It was an absurd argument. Buck and Leroy and John had tried to win on the field, but the segregationists had made that impossible. Well, if nobody will play you, <laughs> you can't play. I mean, we were willing to play, but they wouldn't play us. Once again, the Cannon Street All-Stars would have to wait and see what Little League headquarters decided. Just a few weeks earlier, Little League had declared that racial discrimination was not allowed. Now, the Jim Crow South was defying that mandate. 
the Supreme Court had faced this kind of open rebellion after Brown v. Board. One year after the Supreme Court decision for integration, the Carolinas and other southern states had not moved in that direction. When segregation in public schools persisted, the court had issued a second ruling. That decision, in May 1955, demanded that integration happen with all deliberate speed. Now in July, it was on Little League to do the same thing, to proclaim again that separate but equal was forbidden. But that's not what happened. This time, they sided with the segregationists. Since there was no South Carolina state tournament, Little League would not consider the Cannon Street All-Stars state champions. That meant they were out of the playoffs. Rules are rules. You know, sorry. That's the way it is. And that's the end of the season. The Little League president told reporters he'd sided against the All-Stars in part for their own safety. He said that if Black children took the field in rural Georgia, it would be courting disaster. I can understand having some concern about that. You're in, you're in Rome, Georgia, man. You're in the Confederacy, okay? Could have wound up in a very bad situation. That's what John Rivers thinks now. But as a 12-year-old, all he wanted was to play baseball, to feel the joy he did at Harmon Field when he charged the ball and hit the cutoff man. And in 1955, those opportunities kept getting snatched away. You know, you get pumped up and then you deflated. We're baseball players. Let us play. But that disappointment wouldn't last long. Something thrilling was about to happen that would give the Cannon Street All-Stars hope. Let's take a quick break. Jet Magazine was one of the Bibles of Black America, a 15-cent weekly news digest that tracked celebrity gossip right alongside the triumphs and tragedies of the civil rights movement. One issue from August 1955 featured articles on Children of the Stars, the battle to integrate Mississippi schools, and the injustice being done to the Cannon Street All-Stars. The kids from Charleston were a national cause celeb the Pittsburgh Courier said the All-Stars were the victims of a dastardly act. A Boston sports writer called the whole thing nauseating. And the most famous black ballplayer in the country weighed in, too. And Jackie Robinson says basically how stupid can people be. I had to laugh when I read this. Author Chris Lamb. Can't we allow 11- and 12-year-old boys to play baseball? It just seems so simple, doesn't it? The president of Little League understood on some level that the Cannon Street All-Stars deserved much better. So when he yanked them out of the playoffs, he also did something surprising. He pulled the All-Stars back in. Kind of. Next thing we heard, we are going to Williamsport, Pennsylvania as a guest. Come visit your honorary guests of Little League Incorporated. Whatever the circumstances, John and Leroy were going to the Little League World Series. And with so much of the country behind them, it seemed like momentum could be building for them to actually take the field. 
maybe when we go to Williamsport, maybe they'll let us play or something happen like that. We're there to play ball. We want to play ball, right? The civil rights activist who ran the Cannon Street YMCA was also dreaming about what his team might accomplish. Robert Morrison understands the importance of challenging segregation. So Morrison's idea is, let's keep this story alive. We will continue to fight this war. Morrison didn't want the Cannon Street All-Stars to look like a charity case. So when Little League offered to pay their expenses, he turned down the offer. Instead, they raised money in the community to charter their own ride, a school bus that normally got used to help Black Charlestonians register to vote. Getting on that bus, leaving in front of the YMCA to head to Williamsport, that meant the world to me. As the kids prepared to leave, some of their parents were in tears. They were proud of what their sons had achieved, but they knew they couldn't protect them from all the dangers that traveling through the Jim Crow South might bring. I think our parents and the community did a good job on shielding us from some of that stuff. But Godfrey again. You know, where people have to feel superior to another person or, you know, God forbid, it it broke into a violent thing. A few months earlier, a black man who'd been registering voters in Mississippi was shot and killed while driving on a country road. And just four days before the All-Stars were set to leave Charleston, the Ku Klux Klan had burned a cross at a massive rally north of the city. And we had to go through Klan country to get to Williamsport. Buck had still wanted to get on the bus, no matter what. But for his father, the road trip wasn't worth the risk. The other guys took that trip to Williamsport. I didn't go. My daddy was was still shielding me. Still shielding me. The team left Charleston at dusk so they could pass through the South under cover of darkness. There was a scary moment right away. When they stopped at a restaurant just outside South Carolina, a white man started shouting the N-word. A little later, a Virginia state trooper pulled them over and wanted to know what all these black people were doing on a big yellow school bus. But as they made their way north, there were also moments of joy, listening to the radio and playing pranks. For a group of 12-year-olds, this trip to Pennsylvania felt like an adventure, especially when their bus caught on fire and they finished their journey on a fire truck. And the excitement kept growing when they finally arrived in Williamsport. I really kind of got sweeped up by the atmosphere and being there and sleeping in a dormitory. Here is Lacombing College, where all of the boys stay during the Little League World Series, and the boys get excellent care. You know, teammates and pillow fights and just being 12-year-olds and dining in a mess hall. How was the food? Phenomenal. <laughs> I should never. It was the first time I ate chicken dumpling. Oh, God, I like This stuff is so good. But what stuck out even more was who they ate those dumplings with. They made us move around and not sit with our teammates. They said, no, no, no. You go sit with him, you go sit at that table. And, like, we had never sat next to a white person and have a meal before. It's just surreal. Nobody was thinking about discrimination. We was talking baseball. 
It was a kid's thing. Kids don't worry about all that foolishness. <laughs> Some of the children that Leroy and John saw in Williamsport were from Delaware Township, New Jersey. That team had three black players. And we were like, what? It was an integrated team. And we'd never seen anything like that. Those 12-year-olds from New Jersey had played their regional tournament in Virginia. They heard racial slurs from the stands, and they got death threats before one of their games. But that team from New Jersey played anyway, and won. When they showed up at the Little League World Series, it was because they'd gotten the chance to earn it on the field. John wasn't jealous of those kids from New Jersey. He believed the Cannon Street All-Stars had a chance to win it all, too. And the outfield fence... Our home run hitters were like, oh, shit, we're going to take it out of here every time we get to the play. We're going to tear them up. They let us play, man. Championship Day at the Little League World Series came on Friday, August 26th, 1955. That morning, the kids from Charleston ate breakfast with the other teams, then took a bus to the ballpark. As they filed into their reserved seats, the audience burst into applause. But John and Leroy weren't just going to be spectators. Now, in front of a packed stadium, they'd finally get the chance to show what they could do. They allowed us to take the field and warm up. Uh, the coach hit the ball, you know, around the diamond and hit, hit some balls to the outfield so they can feel it. A typical routine. On this field, there was no crabgrass and no rocks. And with the whole crowd watching, the Cannon Street All-Stars made it clear that they belonged. There was one sequence in particular that stunned everyone. It started when a ball went soaring to the outfield fence. And they hit the ball out there to Alan Jackson. And Alan threw from center field to home plate. With one bounce. Which blew folks' mind. <laughs> oh my God. These are little leaguers? <laughs> a split second later, they heard something they've never forgotten. Fans there started chanting, let them play. Let them play. Let them play. Let them play. In an instant, it felt like everything was changing. That their dream of playing in the Little League World Series was becoming reality. When they started chanting, then I, I thought maybe we had a chance then. You know, because the fans were calling for it. And these were white fans, white people, saying that this is wrong. Let them play. But that practice was all that John and Leroy were going to get. Little League was never going to let them play. And no amount of cheering would change their minds. We had to get off the field and take our seats. So we got all of this hoopla, but no ball. The Cannon Street All-Stars watched helplessly as that integrated team from New Jersey lost in the championship final. I wanted to compare our level of play to their level of play, okay? We, we were superior to them. What do you think would have happened if they had allowed you to play? We'll never know. We'd have won everything. And that's not braggadocio, that's just a fact. But Godfrey. We were well coached. We could run and we could hit. And most of all, we, we loved each other.
The ride up to the World Series had felt full of possibility. The drive home was devastating. And not just because they weren't allowed to compete. In Williamsport, John and his friends had seen an integrated society for the very first time. It was like an escape to a different place. And then you're going back to what it was. You know, you're going back to reality. Back to Charleston. For John and the other All-Stars, that reality was about to get even more terrifying. On our way back from Williamsport on the school bus is when Emmett Till was lynched the same day. This is the muddy backwoods Tallahatchie River where a weighted body was found, alleged to be that of young Emmett Till. Emmett Till was visiting family in rural Mississippi when a white woman accused him of whistling at her. He was dragged from his great-uncle's house, beaten mercilessly, and shot in the head. He was 14 years old. His mother, Mamie, wanted the world to see what had been done to her son. Photos of the teenager's mutilated face ran inside Jet magazine, the same publication that, a month earlier, had featured the 12-year-old Cannon Street All-Stars. I used to go to get the Jet magazine to look at the pretty lady in the middle. And I happened to see Emmett Till's picture. And boy, I forgot about that lady in the middle. Not only is it sad, it's scary too, because you you wonder, hey, if they can do it to Emmett Till, I can be next. From that point on, my whole demeanor changed. And it got so bad that I was terrified to be on the same side of the street as a white woman. So the impact that that made on me changed me. And it changed me to the extent that I knew I was not going to stay in the South. As soon as I got a chance, I'm gone. I'm out of here. Elston Howard sends the ground into Pee Wee Reese. And these Dodgers at last are world champions. A little more than a month after Emmett Till's murder, Jackie Robinson and the Brooklyn Dodgers would finally win the World Series. Two months after that, in December 1955, the black citizens of Montgomery, Alabama, including Rosa Parks, launched a boycott of the city's buses. The other passengers very reluctantly gave up their seats, but I refused to do so. All in favor, let it be known by standing on your feet. This was just the beginning, the first mass protest of the modern civil rights era. But change didn't happen all at once. In Charleston, the All-Stars went back to their segregated schools, and the Cannon Street Little League soon ceased to exist. Many of the kids gave up baseball forever. But even the ones who did keep playing never talked about what happened in 1955. It's funny, you know, that almost like it went underground. Nothing was really said. That was pretty much the end of the story, until 1993. That year, a black kid from Charleston named Lawrence Holt made the all-star team in his youth baseball league. His father, Gus Holt, was his manager. And Lawrence walks into the den of the house, and he has on his all-star jersey. Chris Lamb again. And Gus looks up as every father would with great pride. And he sees a Confederate flag patch on the jersey. 
And then Gus is like one of these cartoon characters where their head blows off. After Gus Holt blew up, he started digging. When I discovered the story and I just dove in it and did my research, actually tears came to my eyes because I said, how could they do that? That's Holtz in an interview with ABC's Nightline. He discovered that his son's league had been founded in 1955 by a man named Danny Jones. That it started as a secessionist movement when a black team called the Cannon Street All-Stars tried to integrate Little League Baseball in South Carolina. That it was originally called the Little Boys League, but later changed its name to Dixie Youth Baseball. That it eventually integrated, but only after Danny Jones's death. And that in the mid-1990s, there was no Little League in Charleston. Dixie Youth Baseball was the only game in town. Holtz, who died in 2020, led a successful drive to do away with the Confederate patches on Dixie Youth Baseball's uniforms. He also made it his mission to publicize the Cannon Street All-Stars. He's the one that unearthed the story from the archives. And um, the rest is, for the last 28 years, we've been talking about the Cannon Street All-Stars. And tomorrow, the Cannon Street All-Stars will board a bus and make their way to Williamsport, Pennsylvania, back to the place that once shut them out. Once again, they'll be in the stands at this year's Little League World Series. The All-Stars returned to Williamsport, Pennsylvania in 2002, 47 years after they made their first trip. They marched in the opening ceremony of the Little League World Series with 16 teams of children. That was surreal. I mean, coming in, these kids, you can tell they're like, who are these guys? Who are these all-black old men? Those old men got presented with a banner declaring them the 1955 South Carolina state champions. And uh, the president of Little League said, it's never too late to right a wrong. That was just um, off the chart, you know? It was bittersweet. I mean, we looked at the field that we had played on, and here we are, grown men now. But Godfrey says that championship banner was a nice gesture, but it could never make up for what happened in 1955. It was like, almost like somebody slapped you in the face, and you didn't have a chance to get back. No, I know what it was like. Somebody took something from you, and you could never retrieve it. I tell people now that you cannot be unscathed if you grew up in a segregated society under Jim Crow, especially in your formative years. It was not the children. We wanted to play each other, but it was the adults. And every time I tell that story, I have to slow down because I tear up. I said, oh, that was adults hurting little children. The surviving Cannon Street All-Stars are all around 80 years old now. Leroy Major is a retired middle school math teacher and still lives in Charleston. Buck Godfrey is one of the winningest coaches in Georgia high school football history. He's also the author of a book about the All-Stars. John Rivers is an architect. One of his most significant projects was helping to design Martin Luther King's crypt. He now lives in Ecuador. We did move on 
if that's the right word, we moved on. But the damage is there. I asked John if, looking back, he thought everything he'd gone through in 1955 was worth it. Whether the push for social progress justified all the pain he felt as a kid. I don't know. But I know this. It exposed how deep and how committed South Carolina was to segregation and racism. It's out in the light. You see exactly what you're dealing with. And it was a bigger statement than us, of course, right? It was challenging an unjust system. Matter of fact, kind of proud to be a part of history that did that. Next time on One Year 1955, Walt Disney is in crisis until a frontiersman and his young army of coonskin cap-wearing followers save the day. I think the term buzz would be an understatement. No matter what homework was assigned, no matter what else was on TV, Davy Crockett was going to be watched yet again. Thanks so much for listening to the first episode of our new season. And if you're a fan of the show, I have some exciting news. If you want to hear more of One Year 1955 right away, the next two episodes are available now for Slate Plus members. That's right. If you get Slate Plus, you won't have to wait a week for more One Year. You can get it in your feed today. At the end of the season, Slate Plus subscribers will also get a bonus episode with a whole new story from 1955. And as a member, you'll never hear an ad on a Slate podcast again. And you'll never hit the paywall on Slate's site. If you'd like to sign up for Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash one year plus. Again, that's slate.com slash one year plus. This episode was written by me, Josh Levine, One Year's editorial director. Our senior producer is Evan Chung. One Year is produced by Kelly Jones and Evan Chung, with additional production by Sophie Summergrad. It's edited by Joel Meyer and Derek John, Slate's executive producer of Narrative Podcasts. Our senior technical director is Merritt Jacob. Holly Allen created the artwork for this season. We got the title of our episode from Buck Godfrey's book on the Cannon Street All-Stars. It's called The Team Nobody Would Play. Chris Lamb is the author of Stolen Dreams, the 1955 Cannon Street All-Stars, and Little League Baseball's Civil War. Research support came from the World of Little League Museum and the Charleston County Public Library. You can send us feedback and ideas and memories from 1955 at oneyearatslate.com. And you can call us on the One Year Hotline at 203-343-0777. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to Michael Scott, Lowell Berlanti, Bruce Roberts, Alan Jackson, Joel Anderson, Christina Cotarucci, Madeline Ducharme, Susan Matthews, Katie Rayford, Ben Richmond, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levin, Seth Brown, Rachel Strong, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. We'll be back next week with more from 1955. I told coach, I could play coach. I could play coach. You need to let, you know, I was insisting. I got to get in the game, coach. I got to play. He's our rivers, our rivers. They put me in do no harm land, right field. 
Okay. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> I spent a lot of afternoons in right field in my day. That's it, Drew. <laughs> it gets lonely out there, right? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.